27 miles southeast of Seattle, Washington, lies the town of Maple Valley, home to roughly 28,000 people. The city's website boasts numerous awards for its safety, such as one of the safest places in Washington, circa 2015, and the best place to raise kids, circa 2013. Among these residents, and at the heart of this case, is Greg Moore, along with his family and loved ones. At 12 years old, Greg moved across the country, from New York to Washington. In his early 20s, he married the love of his life, Michelle. In 1991, the couple was married in an intimate ceremony in Michelle's parents' very own backyard. He was a hard worker. He was a really hard worker, and he loved his family. He loved me. You know, we were supposed to celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary in September, and he was killed in July. And, and he was an, an amazing craftsman, builder, um, cabinet maker. You know, if you, if you wanted something built right, you would go to Greg Moore. You know, he was just... He was that guy and he was kind of a jack of all trades. He knew how to do all the manly stuff, you know? He, he, he's, a, he's a good, hardworking man and they miss it. They went on to have three children, two sons and a daughter. For 25 years, Greg worked as a contractor with Michelle lending a hand in the business as well. They were essentially a team with Michelle stating, quote, I was the one who had the ideas, and he was the one who brought them to life. Around the age of 40, Greg Moore was diagnosed with pancreatitis, a disease in which one's pancreas becomes inflamed. The pancreas has two main functions in our body. It helps digest food, and it releases hormones to control how it uses food for energy. Michelle would say, quote, He used to be a drinker, he used to be a smoker. He did not lead a healthy lifestyle. After Greg's diagnosis, he started to change his daily habits for the betterment of his well-being. Specifically, he took up running, and not just a light jog every now and then. He gradually worked up to 17-mile runs, several times a week. Greg woke up extremely early for these runs, usually around 4 a.m. For outdoor runners, early hours of the day are prime. The weather's cooler, and generally it's safer because there's less traffic. Greg took extra precautions as well, like wearing a reflective vest and headlamp before the sun would rise. In the early hours of July 18th, 2021, Greg Moore stepped out his front door and began what would ultimately be his last run. The area in which I live is a, it's a safe community. You know, we've lived here for, you know, 27 years in, in three different houses and raised all our kids here. And it's, you know, good, hardworking people. And Greg was just living his best life, going for a run, which is something he'd love to do on a beautiful Sunday morning. Michelle awoke a couple hours later, anticipating her husband to return soon. However, when she got ready to leave for work, around 7.30 a.m., 
Greg still hadn't come home. After she didn't hear from him, she asked around, wondering if anyone could get in contact. No one had heard from him. Michelle jumped into action immediately by filing a missing persons report and contacting family members and friends to help in the search. Yet, as hours passed, the whereabouts of Greg Moore were still unknown, at least to everyone except the person who took his life. He was completely innocent. He didn't know her. She didn't know him. She did it just to feel the thrill. You know, it just, it's, it's gut-wrenching and heartbreaking. All the information in this episode that I'm going to disclose is directly from King County Superior Court documents. It's going to sound pretty blunt and straight to the facts, because that's how these things are written. At 10.55 a.m., a woman called 911 from Southeast 216th Street. In front of the Shepherd Valley Church, the woman reported a deceased male was lying in the ditch. Six minutes later, a deputy arrived on the scene. The deputy parked his patrol vehicle and could see a male lying on his stomach in the grass on the south side of the roadway. He was wearing a black sweatshirt with a hood and black sweatpants with white stripes. His shoes were off, with one shoe located near his body. The other shoe was found in the grass, south of his body. The deputy could see obvious blunt force type trauma to the back of his head. He was cold to the touch and noted some rigor. There were no signs of life. The deceased male was later identified as 53-year-old Gregory P. Moore. Lying on the shoulder of the roadway near his body was a piece of plastic. It appeared consistent with a piece of headlight lens. After the area was closed off to vehicle and pedestrian traffic, more officers arrived. King County Detective Walford arrived at the scene at 12.22, roughly an hour and a half after the 911 call was placed. She wrote in her report that the driver of the vehicle did not render aid or call 911, opting to drive away from the scene. She and another detective investigated, photographed, and measured the scene. Walford also noted an obvious skull fracture to the back of Greg's head. On the road where he was struck and killed, the speed limit is 35 miles per hour, and there are no sidewalks. However, Walford noted that the shoulder he was running on was quite wide. Sometime after Walford arrived, the medical examiner took custody of Moore's body and performed an autopsy. The manner of Greg's death was ruled as a traffic pedestrian accident, with multiple blunt force trauma being the cause. Other injuries noted by the medical examiner were two long abrasions on the back of the left leg. According to the detective, these injuries were consistent with a vehicle's bumper striking him, and they concluded that while Greg was running home, a vehicle drifted right and hit him with the front right of the vehicle, breaking the headlight in the process. Pedestrian traffic deaths are not uncommon. In 2017, 
over 5,900 pedestrians were killed in traffic crashes in the U.S. alone. That's about one death every 88 minutes. In nearly half of those crashes, the driver and or pedestrian had been consuming alcohol. In this case, however, Greg Moore's death is somewhat of an anomaly. As a runner, he took the extra steps to lower these risks. He wore reflective gear, ran early, and on rural roads near his home. Plus, he had plenty of room to do so. The driver who killed Greg Moore fled the scene. They didn't attempt aid or call 911. They let him lie in a ditch with fatal injuries for five hours, until a random passerby took notice. Meanwhile, Greg's family was left to grieve his unexpected death, and wonder who could have done this, and why haven't they come forward. This interview with Michelle Moore aired on July 20th, just two days later on Fox 13 News family is desperate for answers after a father and husband was left for dead after going on his regular morning run in Maple Valley. Investigators believe a driver struck him and then just kept going. Q13 News reporter Olivia Lavoie has more from his wife of 30 years. Michelle and Greg Moore had created a beautiful life together. Greg and I met when I was 18 and he was 19. We were about to celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary in September and 34 years together in October. And we have three children and our first grandchild on the way. And he won't ever get to meet her. Life had been going so well. In recent years, Greg had become very health conscious and at 53 was an avid runner. He loved it. He, he did it three times a week and he was fast. And it was, it was so great as his wife, who's known him all this time, to see him morph into this different person, a, the better version of himself. Greg particularly loved running early in the morning. On Sunday, he left his home around 4 a.m. to begin a 15-mile run. When I left for work at 7.30, he still wasn't home yet, and that was unusual. When Michelle got to work and Greg still hadn't answered her text, she knew something was wrong. So she started calling friends and family who planned to walk the route he normally ran. And then we got down to the intersection, and it was, it was blocked off by a police car. And we asked them what was going on, and they said they were investigating a vehicular homicide of a pedestrian. And we knew. Greg's body was found here on Southeast 216th Street, just down the road from a local church. He was found around 11 a.m. Detectives believe he was struck between 4 and 6 a.m. They say if you know anything, it is crucial you come forward. We were looking forward to our future together. We had plans, we had trips. We she has a message for the driver. I just want to have a conversation with that person. I know that's got to be eating someone. I hope that it's eating someone up inside and that they're, I understand self-preservation and they don't want to face the consequences, but they owe that. They owe that to me and my children. That same night, another interview with Michelle Moore was published by King 5 News. Greg Moore called it his immaculate run. His pre-sunrise weekend routine took him all over Maple Valley for a few hours of solace. He liked to run early in the morning. Um, 
Sunday was his favorite run. Ironically, because there's not much traffic on Sunday. His wife, Michelle Moore, left for work thinking he'd be home soon from his 15-mile run. But the hours ticked by and still no word from Greg. My in-laws came over and we started looking, just driving in our car, and that's when we saw the um, crime scene. The King County Sheriff's Office says Moore was likely hit and killed by a driver on Southeast 216th Street who did not stick around, didn't even call 911. Put yourself in my shoes. Imagine that someone that you love and have spent your life with is taken in this way. I need closure. My family needs closure. Michelle and Greg were making plans to celebrate 30 years of marriage. Moore, a father of three, would have been a grandfather this fall. Now his family is left cherishing the simple moments of his final days while struggling to cope with his sudden loss. I haven't slept in the last two days and I'm so tired. I haven't eaten and I'm so hungry. I just, I just want to put an end to this. Investigators hope someone who knows something or saw something unusual, maybe a damaged vehicle, will speak up and contact the King County Sheriff's Office to help bring this family some peace. In Maple Valley, Ted Land, King 5 News. Two days later, on July 22nd, 2021, Michelle started a GoFundMe campaign titled Greg Moore Hit and Run. She posted images of her husband and their children with the caption, So Missed. Four days after his death, two officers returned to the scene to look for additional evidence. Tucked in the grass, a foot from the location Moore's body was found, was an additional piece of plastic. There was lettering on the plastic, an H followed by B4VOR. Surveillance footage was collected from the surrounding area, and a timeline emerged. At 6.10 a.m. on the 18th of July, Greg was running eastbound on Southeast 216th Street. From there, he runs out of sight approximately 0.7 miles for five and a half minutes before the car strikes him. Six minutes after Greg is last spotted on video, and an estimated 30 seconds after he was struck, two vehicles are caught on the same camera, traveling the same direction. The car in front appeared to be a gray Toyota Camry, and following close behind was a silver Ford Escape. There was not footage of Greg being struck by either of the vehicles, but the footage placed both cars at the scene of the crime at the same time Greg was killed. Less than half a mile from the scene, both cars were captured running a four-way stop. Just one minute later, they were also traveling at a higher speed, and the detective stated that this was suspicious. Twelve minutes later, both vehicles were spotted again at the same four-way stop they had run through. The officer wrote, quote, They would pass by Greg as he lay in the ditch. The investigator canvassed the surrounding neighborhoods for Toyota Camrys, similar to the one caught on video. They found several cars that matched the make and model. However, they weren't damaged, and obviously weren't the right vehicle. 
on those cars, they noted the writing HB4VOR along the bottom right lens cover of the headlights. At that point, investigators concluded that they were indeed looking for a Toyota Camry with a model year of 2002 to 2006. Nearly three weeks went by until the King County Sheriff's Office would release an image of the vehicle of interest. On August 6, 2021, the Kent Reporter published an article detailing the new lead. In part, it reads, Using headlight fragments, along with surveillance and other evidence, investigators are seeking information on any gray 2001 to 2006 or similar model year Toyota Camry, Toyota Camry with headlight and or hood damage. Detectives believe this Camry may have been traveling with another vehicle around 6.15 a.m. in the vicinity of the 22700 block of Southeast 216th near Maple Valley. Evidence tonight recovered by detectives investigating a deadly hit and run in Maple Valley. 53-year-old Greg Moore was out on his daily run when he was killed. Now investigators say they're almost certain there was a witness to that deadly crash. Q13's Olivia Lavoie dives in tonight. It's been three weeks since 53-year-old Greg Moore was killed. I miss him so much. And I have his ashes in a box and it sits on the coffee table during the day. And then when I go to bed at night, I bring it into the bedroom and I sit it on his nightstand. Greg, an avid runner, was hit on a road not far from his home early Sunday, July 18th. Hit and run cases are historically difficult because the crime is almost always random, making it harder to identify a suspect. But in this case, detectives have now been able to form a timeline. This surveillance video image captured Greg running at 6.10 a.m. Based on his location, they believe he was hit at 6.16 a.m. About a minute later, this gray Toyota Camry, believed to be an older model between 02 through 06, was seen running a stop sign just a ways up the road from where Greg was hit. When analyzing video, investigators noticed another car driving closely behind the Camry that also flew through this intersection, suggesting the two cars were traveling together and in a hurry to get out of the area. Detectives say it's crucial for the community to call in tips on this case as they say the rural location makes it easier for someone to hide a car on their property. Michelle says it's been hard to fathom that if the Camry is the car who hit Greg, that the other driver following that Camry has also not come forward. I would have understood that, that they panicked in the moment. It's been three weeks. She's doing everything she can to find the answers she says she so badly needs. Family set up a website, whokilledgreg.com, and raised an over $35,000 reward. I need to know. And like I said, I need to have a conversation with that person or write a letter to that person and illustrate to them what they took from me, what they took from my family. Olivia Lavoice, Q13 News. A month passed, and still, no suspects, no answers, nothing. Michelle posted an update to the GoFundMe on September 3rd. In part, she wrote, I want to thank everyone for the generosity and support. We have decided to use some of the funds raised here to hire a private investigator for this case. 
Michelle posted signs in and around the area where her husband was killed. In bold red lettering, it read, Please help, $25,000 award for information leading to an arrest of person or persons responsible. From my understanding, the award eventually went up to $35,000. The sign had a picture of Greg smiling, and above it were the words, Hit and Run Fatality. So at this stage, the Moore family had hired a private investigator, was offering a $35,000 reward, and local news channels were covering the story. The vehicle of interest was also published and broadcasted all over town. But it wouldn't be until September 7th that another break in the case would come. A woman named Lori Cooper arrived at the SeaTac precinct. She reported that she believed that her goddaughter, 15-year-old Kasama Z. Smith, may be involved in the hit-and-run that killed Greg Moore. Lori gave the detective the keys to her car, a gray 2004 Toyota Camry. The detective observed the vehicle and quickly noted a visual match between the headlight pieces recovered at the scene with the pieces missing from Lori's car. The right front side of the vehicle was damaged, the bumper pushed inward, and the windshield was cracked. The destruction on this vehicle was consistent with the injuries Greg sustained, which led to his death, according to the officer. Lori then gave permission to the officers to tow the vehicle for evidence. The following information is from an interview between the investigator and Kasama's 14-year-old sister, who they refer to as M.S. M.S. told them that in July, Kasama and her friend R.C., took Lori's car without permission. R.C. and M.S. are the same age, and because of their age, they are not identified. Kasama was driving, and R.C. was in the front passenger seat. Another friend, who was 15 at the time, was driving in a silver Ford Escape behind them. She'll later be identified as A.W. When Kasama came back from this drive, this is what she and R.C. told her sister, M.S., which was repeated in this document. They said that they hit a guy, that they were going to try and hit him, but not too hard, but that they got too close, and that he went over the car. M.S. was told this story by Kasama before Greg's death had made the news. Later, Kasama showed M.S. a video from the news, and M.S. told the detective that Kasama and R.C., quote, were laughing about it, the way Greg flew over the car. M.S. saw a video weeks later about the Toyota Camry police were seeking, and recently told Lori Cooper, her godmother, about what Kasama had confessed to her. The detective interviewed Lori Cooper next. This is a direct quote from the document. In summary, Lori said that Kasama woke her up back in July to say that someone had hit the car outside with a bat. Lori went outside and realized that the Toyota had been moved, 
that it wasn't parked in the same way that it had been the night prior. Kasama denied driving it. About a week and a half ago, MS reported to Lori that Kasama had hit somebody with the car. Lori later watched news videos about the case and saw pictures of the Toyota. On Sunday night, Lori told Kasama's dad, Paul Smith. Smith confronted Kasama, and she admitted to hitting the guy with the car. Paul Smith later told me that Kasama admitted to being the driver and hitting the man with the car. End quote. The following day, detectives interviewed the 15-year-old girl that was following Kasama in the Silver Ford Escape, A.W. This is a direct quote from the investigator's notes. A.W. said that she was following along behind Kasama and R.C. A.W. said that Kasama had taken the car from Lori. She admitted that she was following behind them, that she heard a bang and saw something fly into the air. A.W. thought that they were going about 50 miles per hour as she followed behind them. A.W. said that the car swerved and straightened out, and that they continued driving. They eventually made a right turn, and A.W. and R.C. got out of the car. They were freaking out, and she noticed damage to the headlight and windshield. A.W. said that she took the male passenger from Kasama's car and drove him home. To clarify really quick, this is not R.C. R.C. is a young female. This passenger was a young male, whom A.W. didn't know at all, who was sitting in the backseat of Kasama's car. The detective also found a prior case involving A.W. from May of 2021 just two months before the murder of Greg Moore. A.W. had stolen the same Silver Ford Escape, and her family didn't press charges. R.C. was interviewed by the detective next at her home. This is a direct quote from the document. R.C. said that they were driving and that she was in the front passenger seat. They approached a man running on the side of the road. Kasama said, I'm going to scare him. I'm going to bump him. R.C. said that Kasama was going about 50 miles per hour. A quick side note, the speed limit on the road was 35 miles per hour, so Kasama was going 15 miles per hour above the speed limit. It continues. R.C. said that she told Kasama to slow down and don't do it. Kasama hit him and then left the scene. End quote. On September 7th, the day Lori Cooper turned in her vehicle to police, Kasama and R.C. met up. Kasama told R.C. that she believed A.W. had, quote, snitched. Kasama then proceeded to try and get R.C. to fabricate a different story, far from the truth. She told R.C. that they should say that A.W. was taunting them to race, then bumped her car into theirs, causing Kasama to hit Greg Moore. R.C. told her that wasn't true, though, and that A.W. was behind them when Greg was hit. After that meeting, 
Kasama texted R.C. that Lori Cooper, her godmother, and M.S., her younger sister, had snitched. That same evening, Kasama returned to Lori's home and noticed that the Toyota Camry was gone. The two started to argue, and that's when Lori told Kasama it had been towed. She had turned her into police, and she, quote, needed to handle this. Kasama became irate, according to the documents. She threw a fit and broke things around Lori's home before fleeing on foot. Her whereabouts were unknown until September 9th, two days later. On that day, around 2.30 p.m., Kasama's father, Paul, turned her in to authorities. Five days later, the King County Superior Court filed the charging documents against Kasama Z. Smith. After two long months without any answers, the Moore family was finally informed that the person who took Greg's life was finally in custody. However, the justice they were seeking would not come because the suspect was 15 years old, a juvenile, at the time of the accident. If the hit-and-run had occurred just 75 days later, Kasama would have been 16 years old and automatically tried as an adult. Those 75 days make a huge difference in Washington's courts. The following was broadcasted on Fox 13 News. Charging documents released today fill in the blank spaces this horrific mystery, and it's tragic because today was also going to be a very significant day for the Moore family. This year was going to be special for the Moore family, celebrating three decades of marriage on September 14th and welcoming their first grandchild in just a few weeks. Instead of celebrating with him, I am here alone, alone in this world without my partner. On July 18th, someone found Greg Moore's body in a ditch. For months, Moore's wife, Michelle, hoped for answers about what happened to her husband. And Tuesday, the King County Prosecutor's Office provided those disturbing details. The prosecutor is charging 15-year-old Kasama Z. Smith with murder in the second degree and felony hit and run. We are naming Kasama Smith, who is a kid, due to the nature of this crime. According to charging documents, Kasama Smith stole her godmother's car from their shared home and went on a joyride through the country roads of Maple Valley with several other teenagers. While speeding through the roads, the document states Kasama Smith saw Greg Moore and said, quote, I'm going to scare him. I'm going to bump him. The documents say Kasama Smith lied about taking the car and how it got damaged to her godmother, but told her little sister what happened and even laughed about it. Smith's godmother became suspicious following all the news coverage on the incident. The documents say when Kasama Smith learned her family turned her into the police, she threw a fit, broke things in the house, and then ran away. All the information in the charging documents is attributed to Kasama Smith's family and friends. I think it's very important to illustrate to her what she took from us. For Michelle Moore, she wants justice for her family, but there's nothing that will bring her true closure. He was a good, good man. He took, he took good care of me. He took good care of our family. Michelle Moore has pushed for Kasama Smith to be charged as an adult. The King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office said today there was no legal option to do this. The next case hearing is tomorrow afternoon. Tonight, the prosecutor's office believes the case that they can prove, though, must be filed in juvenile court. 
even if a conviction means the teen could be out of prison in just six years. Q13 Steve Kiggins is at the King County Children and Family Justice Center tonight with more on the widow's plea for justice. We understand that people are frustrated with us. We're not trying to let somebody off lightly here. The prosecuting attorney's office says officials could seek, try the 15-year-old as an adult, but instead believe the case it can prove belongs in juvenile court. We believe that's the appropriate place for it, and we're going to ask for the highest possible penalty, but we understand that that's, that's not enough for the family. That's not enough for people who loved him. Prosecutors say the 15-year-old has no criminal history and believes asking to move the case to adult court would not succeed. The teen could be charged with second-degree murder and felony hit and run. Even so, a conviction as a child means the teen could be out of prison by her 21st birthday. Even though Moore's accused killer will face a judge, finding justice for Greg means his widow seeks help from the public, sharing her own plea to the prosecutor. He is the man with the power to bring justice to my family by trying this individual as an adult. She knew what she did was wrong. 16 and 17 year olds who are charged with murder in our state are automatically charged as adults, but those who find themselves in similar circumstances and who are younger, they are not. Now I'm going to replay a specific clip of this audio. We believe that's the appropriate place for it, and we're going to ask for the highest possible penalty, but we understand that that's, that's not enough for the family, that's not enough for people who loved him. The man you just heard is Casey McNerthney a spokesperson for the prosecution attorney's office. He was responding to the outrage expressed by the Moore family and many others who felt like proper justice was not being served. Six days after the charging documents against Kasama Smith were released, new evidence from King County detectives was shown by King 5 News. This is what they aired. The teen, who we are not identifying because she's a minor, was charged with second-degree murder and felony hit-and-run. Investigators now believe she may have hit another pedestrian a few days before Moore's death. The sheriff's office says the adult man pictured here likely sustained serious injuries, but they don't know where he is. The sheriff's office believes the hit-and-run happened in the Des Moines and SeaTac area, but are not saying specifically where, because that detail might compromise their investigation. We need to be able to hold this girl accountable, not just for what happened in the Greg Moore case, but anything else that may have occurred, uh, you know, before or after. Investigators say they're still trying to figure out why the teen may have hit two people. They're hoping potential witnesses will come forward with additional tips that could lead to more charges. So, not only did Kasama Smith hit and kill Gregory Moore, she also allegedly struck another man with the same vehicle. That man has yet to be identified at the time of this recording. On October 19, 2021, the prosecuting attorney for King County, Daniel Satterberg, charged Kasama with two additional crimes, assault in the second degree with a deadly weapon and a felony hit-and-run. This would bring the charges against Kasama up to four. In the documents, it states that this second hit-and-run occurred between July 1st and July 17th. Greg Moore was struck and killed on July 18th. And you're probably wondering how police were able to discover that Kasama allegedly struck another pedestrian. Well, it wasn't from her own mouth. During the investigation, A.W. allowed police to search her cell phone for evidence. On September 14th, one detective located a video 
that was sent to her by a contact known as London, by A.W.'s request. A.W. received the video on July 17th, the day before Greg's murder. The following is a direct quote from the new charging documents about the video. This appears to be a video taken from the passenger seat of the Toyota. The vehicle appears to be the same Toyota Camry used to kill Gregory Moore, with the same interior and same damage to the right side mirror. Two female voices are heard laughing as the engine of the car is heard accelerating, with the video filming forward in the vehicle and slightly right. I hear a female voice say, I don't want to dent my shit. Suddenly, a Caucasian person comes into view on the right side of the vehicle, wearing a white tank top. There is an audible bump as the right side of the vehicle hits the man. From the video, it seems like the man was hit on the right side mirror, possibly more. The side mirror is then visible in the video, and it's missing the mirrored glass. The occupants laugh and say things, smack, bitch, smack, before the video cuts off. End quote. After filming this video, the detective interviews A.W. once again. A.W. stated that the person in the video is the same person who sent it to her, London. A.W. stated that London is Kasama's 14-year-old cousin. She also identified the voice that stated, smack, bitch, smack, as Kasama's. Presumably that same evening as the interview, the detective went to the scene where the unidentified man was struck. A.W. was able to give them the location. The surrounding grass and vegetation had recently been trimmed, with potential evidence blown away, or cut up. Weather and time also played a part. It had been two months since the hit-and-run occurred. Two cadaver dogs were then brought to the scene, independently of one another. Both dogs indicated the scent of blood on the grass near the road. On the 16th of September, a detective interviewed London, the passenger who took the video. This is what the document states. London told me that she was the passenger and that Kasama was driving her godmom, Lori Cooper's Toyota. She described the man Kasama hit as a man doing crackhead things, tweaking. She claimed that he flipped them off. Kasama swerved over. She claimed that the man grabbed his head, that he got back up again, and that he flipped them off again. She said that they drove away, and that the side mirror was already missing the glass. London said she thought she filmed the video two days before she sent it to A.W. End quote. If London took the video two days before she sent it, that would mean it was recorded on July 15th three days before Kasama struck and killed Greg Moore. Based on the description given by London and the fact that the victim hasn't come forward, it's likely that this person is unhoused, living a transient life. They're probably suffering from mental health issues, considering they were struck in the head with a vehicle and apparently didn't seek medical attention. On November 12th, the state responded to Kasama's attorneys, who were requesting her release into the care of an individual known as Kiana Robinson. 
The state opposed this and gave several reasons, which I'm going to summarize in brief. Miss Robinson's background was not provided to the court, and she's not a relative or guardian of Kasama. Not only that, but according to Lori Cooper, Kasama would run from her home over to Miss Robinson's to escape the house rules. Oh, and Miss Robinson is the mother of Kasama's girlfriend. Yes, you heard that correctly. The defense was trying to release Kasama into the care of her girlfriend and the girlfriend's mother. To the prosecution, Kasama posed as a clear flight risk and a threat to the safety of the community. She also allegedly tampered with witness testimony. In this case, all the witnesses are juveniles, family, and friends. If Kasama was released while awaiting her sentence, the court wouldn't be able to prevent her from talking to witnesses and influencing their testimony. The prosecution also wrote that Kasama was a danger to herself. There were two separate incidents in where she attempted suicide, according to Lori Cooper. In October of 2020, Kasama was transported to Children's Hospital after cutting her arm while at an aunt's house. In March of 2021, Lori called police after Kasama threatened to kill herself while holding a 5-6 to six inch kitchen knife. There's also a history of violent acts committed in Lori's home. She reported that in December of 2020, she had to call police because Kasama was hitting the wall with a baseball bat. Kasama also recorded the incident for TikTok. This next statement is the prosecution's conclusion about opposing Kasama's release. Quote, At this time, it is more appropriate for these relatives and community members to support her by visiting her in the structured and secure setting of detention. The defense may argue that continued detention could be harmful for Kasama, but there is far greater harm that could be caused to her if she was released to an unstructured, unreliable, unsupportive, and unaccountable community placement, where she can potentially commit new charges and cause more violent harm to endanger the people of her community. Three days later, on November 15th, the court denied Kasama's release. Michelle Moore also read her victim impact statement. I am in utter disbelief that this person's release is even being considered. The defense and the prosecution both wanted her tried as a minor so she could be offered rehabilitation. Yet at the first opportunity, the defense is requesting that she be released. Released from a stable, predictable environment released from a strict schedule, consequences for her actions, and access to in-house rehabilitative resources. The defense and the prosecution both claim that Kasama can't be tried as an adult because her brain is still developing and she didn't understand what she was doing. Yet the defense is seeking to have her cohabitate with a romantic partner she is old enough to understand the complexities of a romantic, domestic relationship, and yet not the basic physics of a vehicle traveling at 50 miles per hour. This is absurd. And who is this woman? This woman who is perfectly fine 
letting an alleged murderer reside in her home? What sort of training does she have to deal with the complexities of this situation? Does she have a degree in child development or cognitive disorders or drug and alcohol abuse? I'm guessing she doesn't. I've been told that she works from home, so Kasama will always be monitored. I'm sorry, but it is impossible to constantly monitor one's activities 24 hours a day in a conventional residential environment. And if this woman fails in her duties to the court, apparently nothing happens to her. This is all so ridiculous. I am also sickened by the fact that she may be afforded the opportunity to go to public school. She has clearly demonstrated a brazen propensity for violence. She does not belong with normal students. She should get her education while in detention. If I was a parent of a student at her proposed school, I would most certainly not want my child exposed to this violent individual. In the early days of this ordeal, I was contacted by someone who knows Kasama. She explained to me that Kasama is an extremely violent individual. She has been in numerous fights and takes pleasure in invoking fear in others. This person wanted to remain anonymous because she genu genuinely was afraid of retaliation. I have forwarded this information to the King County Sheriff's Office. Kasama does not belong in public high school. If she were to be released and she hurt someone, that would be on you. You the judge and you the defense. This will be my first holiday season without Greg. No Thanksgiving leftovers enjoyed together while watching TV. No waking up early on Christmas Day. No staying warm and cozy together in our home while we watch the snowfall. It makes me ill to think about the fact that Kasama may have the opportunity to enjoy some degree of freedom while I am all alone. Alone without Greg, without him, because of her. Thank you. Two days after this, Kasama's defense motioned for specific documents to be placed under a court seal. It stated that these documents contain information that outlines the defense's theory of its case, as well as the identities of potential experts. And I know experts is a very broad term, so I'll give you the definition of an expert witness. An expert witness is someone with specialized skills, knowledge, or experience, who testifies in court about what they believe has happened in a certain case, based on those specialized skills, knowledge, or experience. Still pretty broad, but that's the information Kasama's defense wanted to be sealed. Therefore, the general public cannot access these documents, unless someone wanted to go through the trouble of petitioning for the record to be unsealed, and was successful in doing so. On December 1st, the court granted the request, and sealed two separate documents. Prior to the two separate hit-and-runs, Kasama Smith didn't have a criminal history. However, she has been involved in numerous incidents in which the police were called. At least four. Those situations included her threatening suicide, using a bat to destroy Lori Cooper's home, running away from home, and the last time police were called, was the moment Kasama had found out Lori had turned her car into police, the one Kasama had used to kill Greg Moore, 
and injure another man. She then proceeded to break things in the house and threatened her sister M.S. by saying she would, quote, beat her ass. All of those incidents were provided by the prosecution as reasons Kasama should not be released from the detention center. The family of Greg Moore and a number of community members have expressed their desire for Kasama Smith to be charged as an adult. Their reasons simply include the facts of the case. In July, Kasama stole her godmother's car, then struck and injured an unidentified man. She then stated, smack, bitch, smack. It's unknown how fast she was going. And from the current evidence, it's assumed that this act was intentional, and she felt no remorse. Especially because before she hit this man, she was only concerned for the car, because she stated, I don't want to dent my shit. Days later, on July 18th, she again stole her godmother's car, while going an estimated 50 miles per hour on a 35 mile per hour road, she saw Greg Moore. She told her passenger, I'm going to scare him. I'm going to bump him. Her passenger told her to slow down, to not hit him. But Kasama ignored this and struck Greg Moore, fracturing the back of his skull and lacerating the back of his legs. He was instantly killed. They fled the scene only to return and drive by the ditch where Greg laid dying. Instead of calling for help, she drove away, parked her godmother's car, and concealed the incident. Lied. When the hit and run made the news, Kasama showed the video to her sister. I'm not sure exactly what video she saw, but it probably included pictures of Greg Moore, the man she killed and it probably included a video of his new widow, Michelle, begging for people to come forward. But Kasama just laughed, and recalled how Greg flew over the car when she struck him. She further concealed the truth by telling her godmother that the damage to the Camry came from people smacking the car with a bat. When Kasama learned that she was finally going to face the consequences of her own actions, taking a man's life, she threw a fit. She broke things, threatened her sister, and the police were called. She then fled on foot and eventually made her way to her father's home, Paul Smith. She would then admit to her father what happened, and he would bring her into police two days later. Police would find out the following month that Kasama had struck another man with the same vehicle from a video on her friend's phone. Anyone who told the truth about what happened Kasama called them snitches. For all these crimes, Kasama has been charged with four counts. Second-degree murder, felony hit-and-run resulting in death, second-degree assault, and felony hit-and-run resulting in injury. Because Kasama was 75 days shy of turning 16, the most jail time she'll face is six years. She'll be released at the age of 21. Six years isn't justice in the eyes of the Moore family and many others. But not everyone agrees. On October 12, 2021, a week before Kasama was charged for striking a John Doe, an article was published on Crosscut. The article was written by Claudia Rowe. It's titled, In Maple Valley Hit and Run Case, Revenge Isn't the Answer. The subtitle reads, 
Some want the young teen who killed a man with a car to be tried as an adult. Here's why I think they're wrong. Claudia is a journalist and author, one of which won a Washington State Book Award. Her other book, titled Time Out, is the true story of a Seattle boy who was incarcerated for 20 years. Once out, he, quote, rebuilt a new life as a man. An Amazon review summarized the story in brief and gives it four out of five stars. Quote, this final installment of the missing collection tells if the many tragedies surrounding an unstable childhood of a Seattle boy and his missing parents, his youthful exploits, missing structure and direction, a young boy's missing judgment when he without reason kills a young girl who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and missing the rest of her life. The story centers around Willard, although just a boy, tried and convicted as an adult, and sentenced to an adult prison for over 20 years. Still, amid these many tragedies, and with the help of his loving grandmother, Willard chooses to accept his crime by rising above it and reshaping his life. An inspiring story of reformation and rebirth of a new man, willing to change, and then spend the rest of his life trying to help other young boys from making the same mistakes he did. Claudia Rowe shapes a fact-based story of how against all odds, a boy without hope is able to remake himself and atone for his crime with honesty and humble dignity. A worthwhile short read with some great answers and many more questions about how we should help young criminals to change the direction of their lives. End quote. Now this is a background on Willard Jimerson. By the age of 12, Jimerson had been convicted of assault and theft three times. He was barely 13 years old when he shot and killed 14-year-old Jamie Lynn Wilson. Jemerson was hanging out with a group of older boys and men at the time when Jamie approached them. Jemerson didn't know Jamie until that night. An argument and fight broke out between Jamie and another person in the group. While Jemerson was holding a friend's jacket, he found a gun. He used that gun to shoot Jamie in the back three times as she ran away. He showed no remorse initially and bragged to friends about the murder. This happened in the same county as Kasama Smith would kill Greg Moore. Unlike Kasama, Jimerson was tried as an adult and sentenced to 23 years in prison. Upon his release, Jimerson not only expressed remorse for the murder, but became active in his community to prevent gun violence. In an interview, he stated, quote, I feel like I have an obligation to live for two people now. A life was taken that should not have been so I'm obligated to make sure that next person does get a chance to live. I don't want to see nobody else go through this. I really don't. On both sides. Today, Willard Jimerson is the Director of Education and Youth Development at Urban League of Metropolitan Seattle. Here's a brief overview about the ULMS from their website. The Urban League of Metropolitan Seattle empowers African Americans as well as other diverse underserved communities to thrive by securing educational and economic opportunities. We have been and will remain a place of solace, refuge, and support for our most vulnerable communities, families, businesses, and people. With a variety of direct programming and services focused on housing, education, workforce development, health, and civic engagement. Our team of staff, volunteers, and local partners 
work diligently towards a vision of equity for all, empowering communities and changing lives every step of the way. Jimerson is also apparently the program director at the Regional Peacekeepers Collective, launched as a pilot program by King County officials. The program addresses violence using a public health approach that ensures the treatment and recovery of all people involved. Now that you all have some context about Claudia Rowe and the work she's done, I'm going to read her full article, which was updated weeks later to include the two additional charges Kasama faced. As far away as England, people are talking about a 15-year-old girl from King County. She was charged in September with felony murder for the hit-and-run death of a Maple Valley man out for a jog on a Sunday morning. Thrill kill, shrieked a British tabloid, zeroing in on the police report that alleges the teenage driver and her two passengers laughed at the way the car's impact sent 53-year-old Greg Moore flying backward over the hood and into a ditch, where he died. When detectives began investigating the possibility that the girl had hit another person only hours before, without the fatal end, King County Councilmember Reagan Dunn fired off a letter citing the, quote, intentional and nefarious pattern of the girl's predatory behavior. He has called for her to be charged as an adult. Since news of the incident broke, hundreds of emails from outraged citizens demanding the same have flooded the inbox of King County Prosecuting Attorney Dan Satterberg. Quote, out for blood is the way one person in Satterberg's office described the overall tone of these messages to me. Dunn, a former federal prosecutor, surely knows how closely his wording resembles the racist, quote, super predator trope of the 1990s which demonized a generation of black youth. I can't help wondering whether he would have used a different term if the suspect had been a white kid in Laurelhurst, rather than a black girl in SeaTac. Satterberg, who charged the girl as a juvenile, has dutifully tried to educate the public about the laws that constrain him. Given the age of this defendant, her lack of prior criminal history, and the specific charges, there is no realistic channel to process the teen as an adult. But these are minor details bobbing in a wave of lust for revenge. Some of the outcry stems from the fact that, if found guilty as a juvenile, this menace behind the wheel cannot be imprisoned beyond her 21st birthday. But I suspect also at play is backlash against our current emphasis on restorative justice, a sense that we've overcorrected, gone too far. I get the outrage and disgust. The idea of a girl committing the same terrorizing crime twice in rapid succession does indeed conjure the image of a budding sociopath. Picture the scene. Four kids are tearing down a rural road just after dawn in cars they had no permission to drive. Three teenagers in the lead, one following behind them, and they see a man out for his morning run. Quote, I'm going to scare him. I'm going to bump him the 15-year-old driver of the car says to her two passengers, according to charging papers. After hitting Moore, they pull over down the road. They are, quote, freaking out, one of the girl later tells an investigator. They then turn around and drive back, right past the crime scene. They never report any of it. Those who study youth crime see this kind of impulse thrill-seeking as obvious evidence of immaturity. What's more surprising is that, in this case, the prosecutors do too. Quote, you kind of want to believe that our children don't do these things, 
but in truth, her actual conduct is similar to what stupid kids do. This is exactly how teenage brains work. They start to believe they're invincible. This is a quote from Jimmy Hung, chief of the prosecuting attorney's juvenile crime division. If we agree that the girl at the wheel was indeed a kid, what, then, does justice look like? An eye for an eye? Should a teenager be locked away for life, as some commenters have urged, because she was idiotically reckless? And would that desire for retribution be equally fierce if the suspect were white? Though no picture of the girl has been released, anyone watching the newscast on Fox 13, KOMO, and Cairo 7 would see, through shots of the suspect in court, that she is black. Eric Truppen, a child psychology professor at the University of Washington who consults for the juvenile lockup, where this young woman will likely spend her next few years, stated, I certainly think race is at play. In this country, race is always at play. That possibility was precisely what Greg Moore's widow dreaded during the two months detectives searched for a suspect. In fact, she actively hoped the person would turn out to be white. Michelle told her, quote, I so didn't want this to be a race thing. Michelle Moore does not believe her husband's death was racially motivated, and she wants to trust in the possibility of rehabilitation and change, but she cannot get past the deliberate violence in the way he died. Not long ago, she saw a video of the accused killer at age 11, receiving a pet lizard as a gift. Moore stated, quote, She was this sweet, innocent girl. It's just horrifying what she became a few years later. That little girl is gone. On October 1st, while locked in juvenile detention awaiting trial, the girl turned 16. If she had committed the same crime today, her case would have landed automatically in adult court. But the turn of a calendar page is an arbitrary line. I don't know how many people who believe a kid's brain is much different at 16 than it is at 15 and three quarters. And that person is, indisputably, an adolescent. It also seems clear that this particular adolescent has endured hardship. Her mother is not a part of her life. She had been most recently living with her father's former foster mom. Law enforcement sources says she hung out at high school, but rarely attended class. None of this is an excuse, though it is context. And context is important when considering justice. The noise surrounding this case obscures aspects of it that most of us can agree on, that this girl clearly needed more supervision than she was getting. She appears to have a hole where empathy should be, and she needs to change. The entire point of the juvenile system, unlike adult prison, is to create this kind of change. Admittedly, our record here is imperfect. About 35% of kids sentenced to Washington's youth lockups commit new felonies after being released. But violent teenagers can indeed transform. I've interviewed several who did so while in prison, where they also endured brutalizing assaults and the torture of solitary confinement, injuries that endured long after their release. Maybe that kind of sentence would feel like justice to Michelle Moore and those mourning the death of her husband, a beloved father of three. It would certainly convey the public's disgust. But the kids I know who changed in prison are rarities, and they did so mainly through reading about other people's experiences. I've never met anyone who learned empathy through hard punishment alone. I keep thinking about this comment sent to me long ago from a middle school teacher. Behavior is a language. I'll leave it to the experts to decode the vocabulary behind this girl's alleged acts. But here's my guess. A kid who intentionally rams a stranger with her car is drowning in unarticulated rage. 
she might feel that nothing she does matters much in the world. In that sense, she shares some things with those now calling for her head. We all live with the feeling that life is going off the rails, that none of the old rules apply and nowhere is safe. We all want to draw a line and restore order, but this kid should not be our vehicle to do it. According to Michelle Moore, the detention center where Kasaba will ultimately be held is the Echo Glen Children's Center in Snoqualmie, Washington. Yeah, so it's... Um... It's this facility that is up in a, um, a beautiful area, area of Washington called Snoqualmie, and it's, um, it's a child rehabilitation center. I've gone to their um, website to check it out, and, you know, they have culinary classes and uh, canine therapy and, you know, lots of great rehabilitative resources for troubled youth. Um, and um, apparently, it was probably about three weeks ago now, um, five residents um, attacked a guard and stole her car and escaped. There's no um, fences or gates at this facility. They claim that it has um, a natural barrier because it's surrounded by some pretty rugged wilderness and some wetlands. But um, there have been several escapes at this facility over the years. Um, so they need to re-examine their natural barrier, I think. Um, but it's definitely the place where Kasama will go because it's the only facility that takes um, females. So that's where, that's where she'll be, um, hopefully until she's 21. In an interview from January of this year, an anonymous staff member called the facility a dangerous place that's underpaid and understaffed. They were anonymous because they feared being fired for speaking out. Management had specifically told them not to. Since 2012, 28 individuals have escaped the Echo Glen. Many of the escapees were recovered quickly, but not in the event that occurred on January 26th of this year. On that morning, a group of five boys aged 14 to 17 surrounded a nurse dispensing medications. The nurse was struck in the face several times and threatened with a knife, then locked inside of a room by the group. The teens then allegedly assaulted two more staff members before stealing some keys and fleeing in a state-owned vehicle. Two of the teens had apparently escaped prior to that incident. Three of the teens were apprehended the next day, and the fourth was caught on February 1st. The fifth and final escapee of the group wasn't caught until March 15th, seven weeks later. The most recent escape that made the news occurred on April 4th. A juvenile hopped a fence that night and was taken back into custody roughly an hour later after a helicopter and canine unit tracked them down. This is the place Kasama Smith will be held until she's 21 years old, if she serves her full sentence. Think she glanced at me for just a second, maybe at the first proceeding, but after that, she hasn't looked at me. Um, there was a detention, a detention hearing in the fall, and I was able to address the court and read a letter um, to the judge at that um, at that proceeding. And she didn't even; she just looked down at her hands when I was when I was reading that. She won't look me in the face. Um, I have been told by the victim's advocate that I've been working with that 
after everything is said and done and she is, has been convicted, I might have the opportunity to sit in a room with her and have a conversation. Um, and I would definitely like to take that opportunity. Because this is a juvenile um, and she's being tried as a juvenile, there won't be a parole. There'll be, she'll be sentenced, hopefully. Um, she'll get until she's 21 and then she'll be out, she'll be free. I believe they told me at the beginning that the minimum was three years um, and the maximum was until she was 21. It's because of the words that she used. She said, I'm going to bump him, I'm going to scare him. But if you used the same words while you were pointing a gun at someone, you know, oh, I'm gonna scare him and you pulled the trigger, you know, that, that's an adult crime. So their logic that she didn't mean to kill him, it just doesn't stack up. I don't think that Kasama feels any remorse. And I think that her girlfriend gets off on it. And I think they both, you know, are morally bankrupt. And the kids that were in the cars, you know, I just, I can't imagine experiencing something like that and not coming forward. The girlfriend refers to them as Bonnie and Clyde. Her and Kasama are Bonnie and Clyde. One thing that I can tell you that the, the news media doesn't know is early on after, after Kasama was caught, I received a message from a family member of hers, um, uh, an older relative who reached out as an ally and he's been supportive through all of this. And he, she was supposed to have, um, a second detention hearing in December and it ended up getting canceled, but he, he sent me an 18 minute long video to show to the judge. Um, and the whole time he was just talking about what a piece of trash she is basically. And this is a relative, you know, and that she doesn't deserve, um, you know, only five years and a min minimum security, you know, child rehabilitation center that she should go to prison and, you know, that she's a bad person, that she needs to actually pay for her crime. It has been shared in the news, but I don't know that they've really given it the, the coverage that I think it deserves. Um, the fact that Kasama wasn't alone. She had a person in the passenger seat that had a front row view to what happened to Greg she had a person in the back seat and then there was another person in a car behind them that was a witness to the whole thing and nothing is happening to these people they never came forward it's sickening they, they all went home and they went to sleep after they killed greg so it just it sickens me that nothing is happening to them and they're just going to live their best lives you know i stalked one of them on Instagram and found some pictures that were taken, you know, a few days after she killed Greg and she's smiling in the sunshine and looking fresh and good and like everything's right in the world. And that makes me sick. You know, when we see the victim's point of view or the people that are left behind, you know, it becomes more than just the story of a, of a, of a murder. It becomes the story of a loss you know, and, uh, you know, all the people that are left behind to pick up the pieces. And I think that, you know, because of 
television or whatever, when we're growing up, we all kind of think that justice wins in the end. And that's not really the case. I mean, I'm very thankful that Kasama was caught and I'm very thankful that she, you know, will be serving some time, but I don't feel justified, you know. The latest update on her case was filed on April 27th of this year. The defense and state moved to continue the case setting hearing to a later date for a couple reasons. The defense is still waiting on records that the expert needs to review. The expert also needs to review the records prior to conducting the testing and interviews for the case. Kasama is also receiving a new defense counsel because her current one is being rotated to adult felonies this month. Kasama's next court date is scheduled for June 29, 2022, at 1.30 p.m. This case isn't over. If you want to support Greg Moore's family, please visit whokilledgreg.com to learn more. There, you can sign up for her newsletter and receive updates about the case from Michelle Moore herself. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. And I want to give a special thank you to Michelle Moore for taking the time to talk with me and helping me put this all together. Again, thank you all for listening, and I hope you have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.